Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Caitlin Dickerson. This is The Daily. Today, The founder of Uber has fallen after company shareholders staged a revolt. The dramatic hours leading up to Travis Kalanick's resignation. And the opioid crisis already ravaging American cities has escalated to a whole new level with the spread of a drug 50 times more powerful than heroin. It's Thursday, June 22nd. You probably didn't sleep at all last night. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't slept more than two hours in the past 72 hours, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope you get to sleep tonight. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will, I will hopefully crash soon. Mike Isaac covers technology for The Times. He starts us off Tuesday morning. So, yeah, so Tuesday morning, Travis is, for some reason, in downtown Chicago. He gets contacted by two partners at the firm Benchmark. So Benchmark is one of Uber's biggest investors, and they sort of want to have an audience with him that morning in Chicago as he's there. So they're going to travel to Chicago just to meet with him? That's right. So these two partners, um, Peter Fenton and Matt Kohler, both fly from San Francisco to Chicago specifically just to meet with Travis to sit down and have a talk. At this point, Travis doesn't know what's going on. Maybe it's something to do with like an update on you know hiring at Uber He's taken a a leave of absence at this point, but he's still sort of involved in very high-level discussions. So 10 a.m. rolls around, Chicago time. Travis walks into a room with uh, Matt Kohler, Peter Fenton there, and they present to him a list of investor demands and then a letter of resignation for him to sign that day. Wow. So, yeah, needless to say, he was not expecting that when he walked into the room. What happened leading up to that moment? Like, how did those two investors get there with a letter of resignation in their hands. Yeah. So here's the issue. Like for probably four months, Uber has been dealing with this sort of sustained set of crises around the company. You know, there's Susan Fowler, a former employee, published a blog post detailing her history of sexual harassment. And we broke a story on Uber's use of software to evade law enforcement And, you know, frankly, it was just affecting how people, if people even wanted to work at Uber anymore. I was talking to people who were saying there were dozens of employees leaving every week. So investors at this point were getting pretty nervous. But at the same time, you have this founder, Travis, who refuses to step down and really doesn't actually have to step down because he has this sort of outsized voting control, which is by design. Mm -hmm. So 
initially, investors were on board with that sort of thing just because Travis had grown Uber to exist in hundreds of cities and dozens of countries around the world. And then at some point that turned and his sort of aggression and unwillingness to yield became a huge liability in their eyes. Okay. So Travis is handed this letter at 10 a.m. And then what? So this is where the day kind of becomes crazy. I'm talking to people familiar with the meeting, I would say, throughout the entire day. I'm also flying on a plane down to L.A., so I'm like texting. I'm on airplane Wi-Fi, which is completely awful. I have to pull over on the side of the road to get these updates. But Travis is essentially in this meeting hashing it out with the investors. And from what I understand, Travis sort of went back and forth. You know, initially it was a super intense, aggressive, white hot, mad sort of meeting. You know, Travis is a famously sort of aggressive guy. When you say aggressive, was he, do you think he was yelling at people? What exactly does that mean? Yeah, definitely he'll yell, you know, or just get really up in their face. He has a habit of pacing to sort of get this frenetic energy out of him. So as these folks are, as these investors are sitting at the table, you know, Travis is just sort of pacing intensely talking to them and and giving it, rattling off a list of reasons why they're going to get through this and why he should still be there and and how, you know, this is a betrayal. You know, at the same time, the investors are sort of like, you need to step aside so we can move on. So there are breaks throughout the day, you know, like Travis at one point is, seems like he's going to fight it. Then another point, he, he talks to Ariana Huffington, who is on Uber's board of directors and is a close confidant and, and almost mentor to Travis. Mm-hmm. Ariana kind of talks him down and actually says this might be a good idea. So um, hmm. he was just sort of back and forth all day. And then I'm sort of waiting to hear what's going on. I have two versions of a story written, ready to go, whatever he decides. Wow. So in that time, you were able to pull over on the side of the road, get the updates and write not one story, but two. Yeah, basically, I had to pull over and write two stories from inside of my car, which was really fun. <laughs> By, I would say, 10 p.m., I start hearing little trickles come out saying you need to call around to see what the latest is. And then I get a tip that he's agreed to resign, which really blew me away and, and frankly, blew away the investors who, who approached him for this because they, they, frankly, thought that he was going to fight tooth and nail to the very end. Wow. So how did Travis respond? It was pretty heartfelt uh, statement. You know, he said he loves... Uber, the company with all his heart, and he really has made this his entire life for eight years straight. Uh, He hasn't stopped working. He doesn't take vacations. He's always, always, always thinking about how Uber can win. You know, he also talks about how he's going through this difficult time. And, you know, his mother passed away in this sudden boating accident about a month ago, and, uh, and his father was left in critical condition. And the guy really is going through it. But also, there was a little bit of a tinge of a fight in him. He said, you know, at the same time, I don't want to fight my investors, which are forcing me to step down, essentially, kind of like a backhanded uh, acknowledgement that he's being pushed. So I'm, I'm doing what is best for the company in the future. And that means uh, stepping aside. Okay. So moving forward, do you expect that Uber can take on a totally different culture, can move away from some of these issues? Or do you think that the culture is just too entrenched? Um, And even without Travis, things won't really change. I think it's a symbolic moment. I think a lot of people were not able to get past him, especially because his personality and identity were so inextricably tied to Uber's brand. But, you know, like there are a lot of people inside of Uber who kind of want to see themselves as a, a mature company. You know, like we are on par with a Facebook or a Google or an Apple in the Valley, and we don't have to act like 
these bros in Silicon Valley that are just doing a startup in their garage anymore. So I think, I think the mood right now is probably hopeful despite, you know, all the chaos of the past few weeks. And Mike, how long have you been covering Travis? I've been writing about Travis since I joined the Times. I've been at the Times three years ago, almost to the day. So what was it like for you to get this news on Tuesday? You've been such a big part of of covering the scandals that led up to this really significant moment. I mean, it's just one of those things where I don't think anyone involved in this whole thing knew where it was going to go until Tuesday night at 1030 when I got the statement from Travis. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been kind of insane, but I think that's kind of the story of Uber, that it's crazy and unpredictable, <laughs> and we don't know where we are until we finally land somewhere. All right, Mike, thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Last year, a shocking photo shared on Facebook was seen by millions of people. It shows two adults overdosed on heroin, slumped over in the front seat of a car. A four-year-old boy sits behind them in a car seat, staring straight into the camera. The photo was taken by a police officer in East Liverpool, Ohio, and published online by the police department. They called it a cry for help. You see that photo, you cannot forget it. Nathaniel Popper has been covering the opioid crisis for The Times. You know, I think part of what that photo probably brought home for a lot of people is the degree to which this overdose epidemic has sort of spread to these parts of society that I don't think we used to associate with drugs and overdoses. You know, this was not some strung out guy in a park. And I think just so many parts of that photo just spoke to how far this has all gone. This thing just keeps getting worse and worse every year. And we're at a point where this has become essentially the the leading cause of death for people under 50 in the United States. For me personally, it's one of those photos that came to define the crisis for me. And, And so I think it's one of those things that pops into my mind whenever this topic comes up again. Yes, it was my police department. I remember even seeing it for the first time, and I'm like, oh my God. I called patrolman Chris Green, who works for the East Liverpool Police Department. But since that picture was published on Facebook, many police departments across the country follow suit and publish pictures very similar. So thinking about that scene that your colleague walked up on when he took that photo, is that a pretty common thing for you to run into? Very. It's nearly a daily basis, and sometimes it's multiple times a day, nearly every shift. We have three shifts here, you know, typical daylight, afternoon, midnight. Not always kids are involved, but um, yesterday, the day before, responded to an overdose, broad daylight, middle of the the sidewalk, guy just laying there, dying. 
and I believe he said like the fifth time he's overdosed. Sometimes several times a day, people drive and people wrecking into telephone poles. Um, last week we had one overdose, and he was climbing a telephone pole like he was possessed. We have a huge issue with the whole drug epidemic. Mm-hmm. That is, that, that's what we deal with more than anything else. I think part of what we've seen is this progression through the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think this really began with prescription pills, Percocet, oxycodone, things like that. And you've seen this steady line of prescription pill overdose deaths increasing over the last 10 or 20 years as the drug companies have pushed these pills out as pain relief. And I think a lot of people saw that when uh, authorities started to crack down on prescription pill prescriptions, uh, people who were addicted to these things needed something to get their fix. Hmm. And so they moved to heroin first. And so you saw this really dramatic spike in heroin overdose deaths over the last decade. But really what we're in the middle of right now, I think, is a third wave in this overdose crisis. And can be traced pretty squarely to these synthetic opioids like fentanyl, that's the most widely distributed, the most popular one that's out there, that are something like 50 times as potent and powerful as heroin. And Hmm. this has become the core of the overdose crisis, I think, right now. We see that more than anything. We see very little uh, cocaine. Um, We're actually starting to see very little heroin. Um, Most of everything that we're getting is fentanyl. We've recently discovered a new strand of fentanyl. And then uh, we've even had several occasions of car fentanyl. And when did this become the the it drug? When did it become so popular? um, In this particular area, just over a year ago, when that picture was published, that was about the time when we started seeing the transition. We started seeing heroin laced with fentanyl, and now we're seeing just strictly fentanyl. On this particular incident, May 12th, I'm literally walking into the gym for an evening lift. It's Friday evening, I have a nice three-day weekend, and I was going to spend the weekend hunting. I get a phone call from Rob Smith, um, Officer Smith, and he says, hey, I just seen Justin Buckwell do a hand-to-hand. So we immediately drop what we're doing, we're in unmarked cars. We call our uniform officers, and they're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get them stopped. So they find a reason to stop him, and uh, uniformed uh, officers have the lights on. Um, they have them at gunpoint, and there's the two, Justin Buckle and Cortez Collins, begin to rip open these bags of white powder. Instinct is thinking, you know, it's it's cocaine or something of that nature, just because how pure and white it is. Mm-hmm. So I go to Justin's cruiser and he's sweat profusely. I mean, he looks like. I don't. Have you ever seen a show, Walking Dead? How those people no. just don't look. Okay, even a commercial. If you it's a zombie it, show, right? Yes, these people they're walking zombies. They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't take care of themselves. So as I'm talking to Justin at this point, Justin Buckle, he says it's cocaine. And then finally he comes clean and says it's fentanyl. So we get him back to the station and we're kind of high-fiving because, you know, we we knew that we just disrupted a big drug deal. And as I'm walking out the door, a captain of mine was like, hey, you have something on your shirt, on the back of your shirt. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. 
and I kind of instinctively flick it off with my thumb. Within two minutes, I fall into the door, and that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital and looking around and seeing my colleagues, full-grown men, the nurses, EMTs, firemen, my fiancé, in tears and very upset. And I'm thinking, what in the hell are you guys doing here? And they're like, you overdosed. I'm like, get out of here. You overdosed just by, by touching the back of your shirt to see what was on it? Yes. That was all it took? That's all it took. You, you see a lot of people referring to it as a chemical weapon, and I don't think that's an unreasonable wow. comparison. Actually, the, I think the Russian military used some form of it when there was a hostage crisis at this theater, you know, some some years ago, and they they pumped it into the theater to knock everybody out immediately. Um, you know, it was essentially a sort of chemical weapon in that setting. That's sort of the role it's playing in America right now, um, you know, the, the number of deaths it's causing. And I think part of what's so striking about the rise of fentanyl is how quickly it has made heroin just seem like this kind of tame recreational drug. Wow. You know, I mean, just the, the, the way in which fentanyl can show up in a place where people are already dying of heroin, and then you'll just get like essentially like a mass death event where a bunch of people who had had no exposure to fentanyl maybe weren't aware that it was being cut into their heroin. You know, 15 people will die in a, in a small city in a weekend. My goodness. Um, and, you know, this you're seeing cops talk about this in cities across the country, and you just get bodies everywhere. It, it sounds crazy, but at what point is enough enough? And we're going to have to answer calls and traffic stops and biohazard suits, or a lot of us are going to end up dead. This stuff is as dangerous as anthrax. It's as dangerous as anything. If I mail you this stuff, it's going to kill you quicker than anthrax. Where are people getting fentanyl? We are seeing it from higher drug kingpins, and most of our stuff is being shipped in from Cleveland and Columbus. Cleveland is about two hours north of us. Columbus is about three to three and a half hours west of us. But uh, it's almost a sign of relief to find just heroin or just cocaine or just crack. And then that's sad to say, you know. But the real source of the drugs is probably much farther away, outside Patrolman Green's control. In part two of this story, where the fentanyl is coming from. Here's what else you need to know today. It's time for new leadership in Washington. I think it's time for a new generation of leadership in Washington and in the Democratic Party. Democrats are scrambling to regroup after a disappointing defeat in a Georgia special election. Some of uh, the leadership that we have today, uh, mostly in their mid to late 70s, it's, I think, time to move on. It's time for some fresh blood. The loss has revived concerns about the party, with some members questioning the leadership of House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and others saying the Democratic brand itself has become toxic. Our brand is worse than Trump, Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio told The Times on Wednesday. 
And the Iraqi army is accusing ISIS of destroying one of Iraq's most famous landmarks, a centuries-old mosque in Mosul's old city, where the final phase of the battle for Mosul is being fought. It's also the site where the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, declared a caliphate in 2014. ISIS has blamed the attack on a U.S. airstrike. That's it for The Daily. I'm Caitlin Dickerson. See you tomorrow. These days, shopping for a car feels more like online dating, with lots of swipes and no matches. Which is why CarMax created the Love Your Car Guarantee, so you can get to know your ride with a 24-hour test drive before you buy. And then, take a full month and up to 1,500 miles to be sure it's true love. Or simply return it for a full refund. Falling in love is easy with a Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax. Learn more at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way it should be.